Let's turn to Acts 14 in God's Word. Acts 14. And we are going to read the entire chapter. I know it's a lot, especially in our age of sound bites and tweets. So pray for patience and focus. And I pray that God would speak through his word. Acts 14, starting in verse 1. Now at Iconium, they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So they remained there for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. When an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lyconia, and to the surrounding country. And there they continued to preach the gospel. Now at Lystra there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul, looked, looking at him intently and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lyconian, The gods have come down to, to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus, Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifices to the crowds, with the crowds. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you. We bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways, yet he did not leave himself without witness. For he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. But Jews from, came from Antioch and Iconium, Having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city. And the next day he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. And when they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Then they passed through Pisidia, came to Pamphylia, and when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Italia. From there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work they had fulfilled. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. And they remained no little time with the disciples. Grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. Let's pray. Father, pray that you would open our eyes and our hearts to really hear your word this morning, that your spirit will work in us as only he can to change us, to identify sin and unrighteousness in our own hearts, to identify ways that we follow the world and trust the lies of the world instead of trusting your word. I pray that your spirit would convict us so that we may repent, may turn to you in faith and find hope and joy in our risen Lord. And find hope that you will continue to build your church. Let me pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Um, well, a few weeks ago, we had an elder retreat uh, over at the coast, and it was, uh, it was a great time, fun, fellowship, study, uh, and of course, food. Um, it's always a big part of it, right? Um, it was a great trip, but I had the privilege of actually driving to the beach with our, our one deacon, hopefully one of you guys will join him soon, Eric Westerfeld, and uh, one of our missionaries who will be going overseas. And so we, we were driving through the, uh, the glorious hills of Taft and Maricopa on the way to the beach, and we were just talking about missions, and as soon as we got to the oil fields, Rob started talking about his old job. And it was, uh, it was interesting because he started talking about how he, he liked some parts of it, and it was challenging. He, he actually liked this job to, to, to debrief on the road, and um, he liked the flexibility of the job, but he mentioned some parts of it were hard. And as he talked about his job, I, I kind of got the sense that he, he missed it a little bit in some ways. And so I, I didn't think a whole lot. I just asked him a really insensitive question. Um, sorry I do that. If you're in conversation with me, just know that up front. But, but I, I asked him, Rob, do you... Do you ever feel a little crazy? Ever feel a little foolish for, for leaving that all behind and, and committing to go to the mission field? And I halfway expected him to say, no, no, come on, you kidding me? I'm doing the Lord's work. This is what I've been born to do. Uh, I, I never looked back, never even thought about it. But I was so grateful that he was honest. Because I asked him, you know, do you ever feel crazy? And he just kind of looked and said, yeah, I, I know that I could get my job back in a heartbeat. My wife could get hers back maybe even faster. We could, we could buy a house. We could settle in Bakersfield. We could go to Sovereign Grace every Sunday, serve and, and love people, honor God here. But then he said, but what else can I do? The world needs Jesus, and I can go. And it, I was so struck by that because I was so thankful that he, he recognized the struggle. And it, it stuck with me so much that I decided to make the next three weeks in Acts, that's, that's our focus, our theme, is that the, the foolishness, the world thinks the gospel is foolishness and ridiculousness and crazy, but it's really the power of God to save, and we, we struggle with that. Have you ever struggled with that yourself? Have you ever felt foolish for trusting in the Lord? Foolish for believing what the Bible says and, and doing um, what God what honors God? Because you see that we live in a world where they believe the gospel's foolishness. They believe it's ridiculous. And they don't just believe that the gospel is foolishness. They believe that anything we do in response to the gospel is foolishness. What we, what we say and what we think and what we spend our money on, what we spend our time on, they think it's just ridiculous. Because as it says in 1 Corinthians 1.18, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And you know what? This isn't, this isn't a new problem. The same problem in Jesus' day, the same problem with the apostles and Paul and Barnabas here in the mission field, and what I want us to see is I want to look at Acts 14 through that lens. I want us to look at Acts 14 because we may be tempted to think that the things that Paul and Barnabas did are crazy and pointless and stupid if we look at them from the world's perspective. But what you need to know is that it may appear that way sometime to the world, but behind the scenes, God is always at work. He's always at work, getting exactly what he wants, growing the church, and saving people. Because as it also says in 1 Corinthians, God chooses what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. He chooses what is weak in the world to shame the strong. He chooses what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are. Why? Why does he do that? So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. See, God likes when his people seem like the underdog. Facing your giants, David and Goliath. God's people are never the underdog. Never. And when they win, when they receive victory, he gets the credit. And that's exactly what's happening here in Acts 14. 
So like I said, for three weeks, we will spend time going through this text. And three weeks, I want us to focus on one primary thing, which is the power of God to save through foolish gospel ministry. The power of God to save through foolish gospel ministry. The world sees it as foolishness and ridiculous. We see it as God at work, at God saving. And I had such a hard time breaking this down because this whole chapter, really this whole first missionary journey, Luke really treats as one whole unit. So the best way to think of these next three weeks is kind of like a little mini-series. Or even even better, one giant sermon um, split into three sermons. They're all tied together. This is one theme that, that Luke wants us to see here. So for this week, we'll focus on foolish preaching. Next week, we'll talk about foolish persecutions. And then the last week, we'll talk about foolish planting, foolish church planting. So this week, we are focusing on the power of God to save through foolish gospel preaching. And I'll do that in three ways. First of all, we'll talk about foolish method, preaching. Preaching is kind of a lost art or a dying art, some people say, in our our world. And so why does the world think preaching is foolish? Why do they think it's ridiculous? We'll talk about that. And then the foolish message. So they don't just think preaching is foolish. They think what they say, the gospel message is foolish. But then we need to see the glorious result of foolish preaching. So foolish method, foolish message, and the glorious result, how God is at work to save through foolish gospel preaching. So First thing, first one in chapter 14, um, we will see that the foolish method, preaching, is foolish because it causes division. Verse one. Now at Iconium, they entered together into the Jewish synagogue. Now let's stop there for a second. Where were they entering from? Where did they come from? Well, if you remember, last week in chapter 13, Chad talked about they were doing ministry in what's called Pisidian Antioch. I know there's a lot of different Antiochs. Um, it's a little confusing, but this is city in Antioch. And if you remember right, what happened was they preached the gospel in the synagogues. Some came to faith, but when they preached again, as more believed, more were opposed. And eventually they were run out of town. They, they shook the dust off their feet in protest, saying, you, you judge for yourself that you're not worthy of the gospel. We're going to go to the Gentiles. And that's where we were left in chapter 13. This looked like a disaster of a church plant. Now they go into Iconium. And what do they do? Right to the synagogue. See where the foolishness comes in? And they're in Iconium, which is about 90 miles southeast. It's an important city. It's very mixed culturally. It's mostly Gentile, although there are some Jews there, and it's very uh, well-educated. It's filled with a lot of Greeks. So as they enter into the Jewish synagogue, this is what they do. Verse 1, they spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. Amen. The church is born. But verse 2, the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. Here we go again. (laughs) And guys, you need to know this up front. Preaching the gospel brings division. Preaching the gospel brings division. We, we can't just assume that when the gospel is preached and heard, that everybody will see it as good news. That people will just want to join hands and sing kumbaya. You think, oh, come on, that's ridiculous. No one would ever believe that. I don't believe that. That's ridiculous. Do you? Are you sure? Let me ask you a question. When, when the gospel is preached and there's division, it's not received well, what's your first response? Is it, oh, the Lord's at work? Ah, just Of course, the gospel was preached. Or is it, oh no, oh no, panic mode, we got to do something, we got to fix this. Oh, well, let's see, what did I miss? Did I, did I not you know, go through the gospel correctly? Did I put in too much law? Did I, did I put in not enough gospel? Did I not go deep enough theologically? You know what, maybe, maybe I need a different message and a messenger. Somebody that's more kind than me or, or gracious than me. Somebody that's more relevant in skinny jeans and more tattoos or whatever. Right? I need something different. That's, what, that's the problem. We need a different way to deliver this. And look, there are places and times to talk about method. But when the gospel divides and we go straight to method is the problem, 
we're believing the foolish lies of the world. We're believing that God's not at work. Look, division happens when the gospel's preached, period. It's not a mistake. It's not a defect. It's not a problem. It's the outcome. As John Calvin says, the same sun both melts wax and hardens clay. When the gospel is preached, the Spirit is at work to harden hearts and to awaken hearts to faith. Do you realize what that means for our time here this morning? Do you realize what that means for every time we open the Word of God? When we preach the gospel to each other, when we talk about the Word of God, and especially when it's preached in corporate worship, every single one of us is being drawn closer to God or pushed further away. Division's happening right now. Yet we can so casually and flippantly approach God's Word. We can walk in here as if we're, we're coming to a movie, refreshment in hand, ready to be entertained. Or a classroom, ready to, to take something that we want to critique or we want to challenge later. But we need to approach God, God's Word humbly, trembling, ready to trust and obey. I had a teacher in college named Eric Tonis, and he swore one day he would do this. I don't know if he has. It's been a long time since I've been in college. But um, he wanted to, before the congregation comes into the auditorium, he wanted to cover the auditorium in caution tape. And he wanted to hand out hard hats at the door. And he wanted to communicate, look, what we do here is not just discuss or talk or play with words and ideas and entertain. What we do here has eternity in the balance. Eternity is at stake. When the gospel is preached, lives are changed. Sometimes for the better. Sometimes in a negative way, it seems. Because the gospel can divide. And that's what it does in Iconium. But here's the weird part about this. It doesn't just divide. It divides in weird ways. Look at the text with me. Verse 1. Who believed when the gospel was preached? Jews and Gentiles believed. And in verse 2, Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the church. I don't know if you know this, but Jews and Gentiles didn't get along. They don't. The Jews were always, they thought the Gentiles were godless idolaters, and they were a lot of times, but they, they even thought that they would contaminate them. That's where the whole wiping the dust off their feet came from. They didn't want to have the Gentile dust making them unholy. So they hated the Gentiles. They thought they were an obstacle to worshiping God. But the Gentiles weren't much better. They were suspicious of the Jews. They thought it would anger their gods if they turned to the one worship of God. And they thought, why would you worship one God? You've got to make them all happy. That's what they thought. And so these groups never got along. They're always at each other. But when the gospel is preached, Jews and Gentile come together as the church, and they come together to persecute the church. The gospel brings divisions, and this is foolishness to the world. Why would you ever do this? And Paul and Barnabas knew it would happen. It wasn't an accident. Jesus even said it would happen. Matthew 10, these are the words of, of the Prince of Peace. Do not think I have come to bring peace to earth. I have not come to bring peace but a sword. For I have come to set man against his father, and daughter against her mother, and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemy will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father and mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. That's not the verse that makes the bumper sticker. And nobody has that picture of Jesus with a sword dividing families over the mantle, right? Why? Because we know deep down that the world thinks it's foolishness. That the world says, you know what, that's ridiculous. Jesus is anti-family. How could you be anti-family? How could you want to do these things? Why would the gospel divide like this? This is what God's supposed to be about, right? No, the, to the world, this is foolishness. This is crazy. And you know what, this is something that we start to believe and adopt even in the church. We see Paul and Barnabas preach in a city divided. We think, all right, guys, time to switch it up. Time to change your method. Time to... Let's start some VBS. 
right? Let's start VBS. Let's, let's start showing a, a really moving movie about Jesus. That'll go better. All right, or you know what? Let's just do some damage control, and, and we'll start um, seminars on dating and parenting and everything we can think of that will help. Or better yet, let's start a bunch of small groups so that we'll have a niche for every single type of person out there so nobody will be mad. That's the way to go, right? Or you know what? Here's the best solution. Let's just survey Iconium and see what they want to be taught and how they want to be taught. The church does this. And look, there are times to think about method and ways to do this, but not to just toss the preaching of the word out. Not to just say that it's still not the primary focus. And praise God, that's not what Paul and Barnabas did. They stayed preaching. Verse 2. Preach the word, it was division. Verse 2, the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles, poisoned their minds against the brothers. So what did they do? They remained for a long time speaking boldly for the Lord. Did you catch that? They didn't just say, all right, we're going to ditch preaching. We're going to turn it up a notch. We're going to preach more and stay longer and be bolder. And by the way, the boldness there is not social media boldness, Right? You get angry and I get angrier. I go all caps on you or whatever that might be. What? That's, that's not what we're talking about here. It's not obnoxiousness and, and just talking loudly and being arrogant. This kind of boldness is what Chad talked about last week. It's clarity. It's persistence. Even when it's not palatable to the rest of the world. It's looking people in the eye and telling them the truth about themselves and about God, even though you know there might be consequences. They respond to division, to foolishness in the world's eyes, by preaching the gospel more. And what happened? Verse 4. But the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews, some with the apostles. And when an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derby, cities of Lyconia and to the surrounding country. Just like before, division happens. They're run out of town, this time threatened with stoning. And look at verse 7. They gave up preaching the gospel. Oh, wait. Doesn't say that. Verse 7. And they continued to preach the gospel. Guys, foolish preaching is not just a, a way to reach people. It's not just a way to, to preach the gospel, the way to do ministry. No, they're committed to this foolish preaching because God is using it to save. They're committed to this foolish preaching no matter what the cost. And it does cause division. It does cause difficulty. And we need to be okay with that. But it doesn't just cause division at times. It can actually end up causing confusion, which is what we see in the next town. Look at verse 8. Look at verse 8 in Lystra. Now let me talk about Lystra for a second. Lystra is not like Iconium. Iconium was a big city, a well-educated city. Lystra is kind of the rustic, backwater type of place. The type of place that would be, wouldn't make most maps. And there's a lot of different religions there, but there's no synagogue, apparently. And there's, there's pagan idolatry everywhere, as we will see in just a second. So let's look at verse 8 again together. Now, at Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking. Now, please notice this. A lot of people think the miracle is the first thing in the story. No. What was Paul doing? He was preaching. The miracle is a sermon illustration. Please get that. The miracle is in the midst of the preaching. So he listened to Paul speaking, and Paul looked intently at him, seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lyconian, and please catch this too, Paul was speaking in Greek. They knew Greek, but when things got serious, they went right back to their native tongue. And they're rejoicing in their native tongue in Lyconian, and Paul and Barnabas are confused. They don't know what's going on. And this is what they said. The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus. Paul they called Hermes. 
because he was the chief speaker. Wow. Talk about a sermon gone bad. <laughs> Could it get any worse? I mean, they weren't stoned to death. It's better, I guess. But the preaching was great. Miracle, just like perfect timing. And then all of a sudden, pagan idolatry just run rampant. What in the world happened? Well, there's something that was going on here that Paul and Barnabas didn't know. You see, this region wasn't known for much, but it was known for one particular story. There's a Roman poet named Ovid who had this legend of, of Zeus and Hermes coming to this region. It was the region of Phrygia. And he would come to this region and he would go town to town, house to house, uh, both Zeus and Hermes, and they would ask for hospitality. They would ask for people to care for them and give them a meal and give them a place to stay. And over and over and over again, they were rejected. Until one day, they came to this, this elderly couple, and they let them in their home, cared for them, and fed them. And so Zeus and Hermes would reward this elderly couple by, by taking them to this hilltop while they flooded the whole city, this whole valley, and killed off everybody. Very merciful, right? And to reward the couple, they turned their house into this temple and made the ceiling of gold and made them a priest and priestess. And so when Paul and Barnabas come and preach the gospel, and then Paul does this miracle, the people do what they do best. They go right to syncretism. They go to exactly what America does every single day. I, I really believe that that is the goal of American religiosity. And if you don't know what syncretism is, it's this idea that you can choose and sample and pick from every religion, every idea, and just blend them all together, and that's your religion. That's your life. As it, said, as it was said at the Radius Conference, that's the most popular religion in the world. I'll take this from Buddha, this from Jesus, and it's just my, my spiritual buffet. These people were doing that. They were pulling this in, and they were like, oh, of course, I guess Barnabas must have been a little older, bigger gentleman. He's got to be Zeus. Paul's speaking a lot. He's got to be the messenger, so he's Hermes. And these people don't want to mess this up. <laughs> There's a lot along, along the line here, right? They don't want to be swimming in a few minutes. So they, they don't want to mess this up. So what do they do? Verse 13. The priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gate and wanted to offer sacrifices with the crowds. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments in this sign of, of outrage and blasphemy. They rushed into the crowd and cried out. And then Paul gives a sermon. He finishes his sermon. We're going to come back to that in a second, but jump down to verse 18. Look at how the people responded to the sermon. Even after the sermon, even with these words, they scarcely restrain the people from offering sacrifices to them. Paul and Barnabas went right back to their foolish preaching. And this time, it didn't cause division. It caused mass confusion. Now, some people might say, well, you know what? It's not the preaching that caused the confusion. It's got to be the miracle. That's what they were confused about. But I want, I want to press on that for a second because that shows a misunderstanding of what the miracle was even for. I mean, go back up to verse 3. Kind of skipped over this, but this is a great description of what the miracles and acts are doing. Yes, they're healing people. Yes, they're showing the power of God, but that's not why they're happening. Look at verse 3. So they remained there for a long time. Speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness. So the Lord bore witness. He testified to the word of His grace. What's that? That's the preaching of the word. So God is testifying to the preaching of His word by doing what? Granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. You see, the miracle is God's amen on the sermon. It's God's stamp of approval saying, listen to these men. Listen to their message. As this gospel enters a new region, this is what God is doing. But when Paul and Barnabas do a miracle in Lystra, everything just goes crazy. They lose it. They focus so much on the miracle, they've lost the message. They forgot about the preaching. And isn't this this danger in preaching? Isn't this why the people in the world say, you know what, preaching's just a, a lost cause? It's just ridiculous. I mean, after all, isn't language just this massive barrier? 
culture and worldview. I mean, we have a whole school of radius to go down for a year to get trained on this so this doesn't happen. And the amazing thing is it'll probably still happen to our missionaries. Hopefully not as bad. But language is a problem, plus people get distracted. How many of you remember what you did completely yesterday? What was preached last week? Our feeble minds and and our distracted minds just take us all over the place. So why even preach? And then the world I live in as a teacher, man, I hear this so many times. You know what? Preaching's not good for everyone. It's only good for auditory learners. If you want visual learners, they need charts and diagrams and videos and all kinds of things. And, and the kinesthetic learners, they need like fidget spinners, right? Could you imagine Paul handing out fidget spinners in Lystra? Oh, this is going to work. If that's how the world sees preaching, it's just not enough. And look, we all know communication is hard. I mean, at least those that are married know that communication is hard, right? We know it. It's not easy. And you know what? Some of us... Probably all of us even have our own reasons why we, we think that f- preaching can be foolish. What are the reasons you have for not opening your mouth to preach God's word to people? To preach the word of life and truth, the, the very thing that every person in this world needs? Scared of your reputation or worried that it might cause division or confusion? Worried that you might not know enough or be ready enough? What holds you back? When it holds us back, we're just believing the lies that preaching is foolish. It's not effective. It doesn't work. Thankfully, Paul and Barnabas didn't believe that lie. They stuck with foolish preaching. Well, maybe they stuck with it not because preaching was so effective. The method was just a mess, it looks like. Maybe the message, the message is what was so good. Let's look at the message. Let's look at what they talked about. Not just how they talked, but what they said in these two cities. We go back to verse 1. We'll start there. But actually, let me just give you some highlights. In verse 3, the message is called the word of grace. We all want grace, right? Mercy, that's great. Paul says, we bring you good news in verse 15. It says the preaching strengthened the souls of the disciples and encouraged them in verse 22. That all sounds great. That sounds like positive, encouraging Christian radio, right? That's what we need, the message of of grace and mercy. Is that really their message? Let's look a little deeper. Verse 1. Now at Iconium, they entered together into the Jewish synagogue. Now, you need to stop there for a minute because those words entered together are not the best translation. They most surely entered the synagogue together. But those words actually have the idea of that they entered the the synagogue according to the same. That's what they literally are in Greek. So the idea is that they entered the synagogue like they did before, with the same pattern they did before that got them kicked out of the other town. So let's look back at 13. Turn one page over to chapter 13. Let's see what their message is in Pisidian Antioch. Even though we don't see what it is in Iconium, we know what it is by what they just did. Now, if you remember, Paul preached the Old Testament. He preached and walked the people through the Old Testament because they were in the synagogue. They knew the word. And then in verse 38, he reaches his climax and he says this, 1338. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, that's Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. That sounds great. Positive encouraging, right? Right there. And by him, everyone who believes is freed. Wait a minute. These are Jews that are hearing this. Paul just said everyone. Paul, you mean those those filthy Gentiles? You mean they can be freed? They can be forgiven? Aren't we better than them? Aren't we God's people? Everyone? Are you sure, Paul? He says everyone who believes is freed from everything from which we could not be freed from by the law of Moses. What? Paul, you don't understand. The law of Moses was God's gift to us. He gave it to us. It makes us distinct from the people around us. This is how we're trying to maintain our relationship with them. Now you're saying it's, it's worthless? It doesn't make us any better than the Gentiles? We have to be forgiven too? He's even clearer in Romans when he says, For by works of the law, no human being is justified in the sight of God. 
Since through the law comes knowledge of sin. So Paul's message is that law-keeping, self-righteousness is worthless. It doesn't make you any better off. The only thing it does is make you more aware of your need. Your need for Jesus. That's his message. How's that going to go to a Jewish audience? We know how it goes. They kicked him out of town. They ran him off. Especially because he didn't just say, you're sinful and broken like the Gentiles. He said, there's only one way out of this. You need Jesus. He is the only way. It's the exclusivity of Christ once again. He is the only hope of the Jew. But what about the Gentile? Chapter 14. Go back to 14. Let's look at what he says to the people in Lystra. This seems really weird because right after the Zeus and Hermes disaster, the miracle, all this stuff, they rush out in the crowd after this blasphemy is committed. And here's Paul's sermon, or just a little snippet of the sermon, I believe, of what Luke gives us here. Verse 15. It says, men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you. We bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God. Now, he doesn't start with the Old Testament. They don't know it. But what does he do? He still goes after their tradition, their gods, their worship. And what does he say? Those are vain. They're useless. They're worthless. They're always promising a lot, like they're going to deliver, but they never do. He just called their worship foolish. Then he compares it to the living God. What is he saying about their gods? They're dead, (laughs) right? So he's saying your worship, your life is spent on vain, dead things. How's that going to go? Any better than in the Jewish synagogue? No. And he doesn't leave it there. Look what he does. Verse 15, he says, This living God made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. This God is your creator. He's not like your God's. He's above your gods. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. You can't stay ignorant any longer. Yet he did not leave himself without witness. For you did good by giving, or he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Paul says this God is good. He's the creator. He's the sustainer of life. He doesn't even need you or your sacrifices. And he's already been gracious to you. You've devoted your life to foolish masters. Turn to this new master. He's the only way. And by the way, you can't just incorporate him into your gods. He's the creator. He deserves all your worship. And it can feel like Paul's message to the Gentiles and to the Jews were totally different, but they weren't. The only difference is where he started the Gentiles, and we can learn a lot from this. The Jews knew that God created the world, but the Gentiles thought that everything else just, they had to worship everything that moves. So Paul says, no, God made the world. Let's start with God and your relationship with him. You are a creature, not creator, so automatically you need to submit to him. And then where does he take him after that, both Jew and Gentile? Your idolaters, your lawbreakers. He goes from creation to law to Savior. Every single one of them, he gets to Christ. This is the way out. This is the hope. You can't stay ignorant any longer. You have to turn your life over to Jesus. Submit to him. He's the only place you find hope. And we don't get that part of the sermon in Lystra, but it had to happen because when Paul goes back, there's a church. They're worshiping Jesus there. So we must have just got a little snippet of the sermon that Paul preached to these Gentiles. How does this message receive today? Creator, sin, Savior. Is it seen as just as foolish in our own world? We preach a message that says, you're not good enough. When our world wants to say, I'm good enough just the way I am, I can even define what goodness is. Our message is, you're not good enough. You've fallen short of the glory of God. You're not keeping his law. You're an idolater. And your only hope is Jesus. 
the Savior that died. That's a foolish message to our world. He's the Savior of everyone. The ground at the the cross is level. He's the Savior of the prostitute and the preacher, of the homeless man and the businessman, of the child and the adult, of every single man, woman, and child that recognizes their sin and repents and turns to him in faith. He's the Savior of all. That's the only hope for all, and that's foolishness to our world around us. It's offensive. How dare you say that you know better than me, that you know truth? The most offensive message in the world is what Peter preached in Acts 4. There is salvation in no one else, for there is one name under heaven and earth by which men must be saved. That's why 1 Corinthians says, For Jews demand a sign, Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. Can you think of anything more oxymoronic than that? Savior that died. God that brings life by death. It seems so foolish. It's a stumbling block for the Jews, folly for the Gentiles, but it's the power of God to save. We live in a world that wants to feed us these lies that preaching is foolish and the message that we preach is foolish. And it may seem like that at times. It may be difficult to see past that. But I want us to look at this text to see what God is doing. We so often miss this. We see, oh, they had a preaching. They divided a town. They preached and people went crazy. This is a disaster. Paul and Barnabas just don't know what they're doing. But we need to look behind their actions and to see what God is doing. Because in the midst of this foolishness in the world, God is at work building his church, growing his church, saving his church. And that's what we need to see. So we need to look at the glorious result of foolish preaching. And the first thing I want you guys to see is what Jesus did. The apostles weren't the first ones to preach. Jesus believed his mission was to preach. That's what he lived for. Turn to Luke. Keep your finger in Acts 14. Turn to Luke chapter 4 briefly. Luke 4. Do you remember what Jesus did first in his public ministry? What did he do? Did he, did he run for office? Did he gather groups of people to start mercy ministry? No. He preached in the synagogue. Look at Luke 4, verse 14. Right after the temptation, he comes back from the desert after battling Satan and winning. He does this, verse 14 in Luke 4. Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country. And he taught, he preached in the synagogue, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth where he'd been brought up, and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, and listen to what he says. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovering sight to the blind, setting at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He preached. He taught. This was his mission from start to finish. Then he says this, verse 20, He rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him, and he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And if there's ever a moment for a mic drop, I was hit. This is why I came. This is what I'm here to do, to preach the good news to the lost and suffering and dying world. I didn't come here to fix Rome. I didn't come here to make your best life now. My mission is to preach. To preach the gospel. It's not a lost cause. It's not foolishness. It's what I'm here to do. And here's the thing. He preached the gospel that he's ultimately going to fulfill. Right? He's preaching the cross on the way to the cross. He's obeying God's law as he's calling out people to repent of not following God's law. He's fulfilling the promises of God as he's proclaiming the promises of God. That's Jesus' mission. And that's the mission he gives to his church. Right? 
Some of his disciples had a really hard time with this. Do you remember when John the Baptist was having kind of a crisis moment? He was thrown into prison. Jesus is gathering disciples, but there's a lot of opposition. And, and John the Baptist sends his disciples to Jesus and basically just asks them, are you really the Messiah? Because I'm in prison. People hate you. This is not looking good. This is looking pretty foolish. Do you remember what Jesus tells his disciples? Matthew 11. Don't have to turn there. Let me read this. Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up. He doesn't stop there. He says, And the poor have good news preached to them. Right back to Isaiah. John, you forgot. You're believing the lies of this world that this is foolishness. This is ridiculous. This kingdom of God thing is just not going to work out. But I'm preaching the good news. I'm healing to show everybody the good news has arrived. The king has arrived. This is the hope of everybody. And then he gives that hope to the disciples. He starts his ministry with preaching, and he ends his ministry by handing the preaching of the word off to his disciples. Do you remember that? Matthew 28, he gives his mission to the apostles. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. I'm in charge. I'm in control. So go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. How do we do that? Baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. How do we do that? We preach. We herald the good news. We proclaim the truth that God has given us in his word and that Christ has accomplished on our behalf. And he says, and I will be with you. It's not just about foolishly saying words and hoping people come. It's about preaching the truth, preaching God's message, and God will be faithful to work in and through it to save people. And it may seem like a train wreck as we look through Acts 14, like, man, this just did not go well. But what really happened? Look at verse 20 with me. What happened through all of this madness, it seems? Verse 20. Paul was just stoned to death, miraculously healed. Don't believe he was actually killed. I think he was close, but not quite there. But look what God did. Verse 20. When the disciples gathered about him, he rose up. Surely now is a good time to retire, right? He entered the city. He went back to Lystra, where he was stoned to death and drug out of town. And the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derby. And when they had preached the gospel there, again, to that city, he made many disciples. And then, listen to this, he returned to Lystra, to Iconium, and to Antioch almost feels like that's just too good to be true. Like, did I really read that correctly? He went back to the city with the Zeus and Hermes madness. He went back to the city that threatened to stone him to death. Back to the city that did stone him. Why? Why would you go back to the city? What is he doing? Verse 22. Strengthening the souls of the disciples. Wait, there's disciples there? God saved through foolish preaching? God saved a church of Jew and Gentiles in those places? Yeah. And he encouraged them to continue in the faith, saying through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Paul went back to preach some more because Paul understands something that we often don't. Preaching is not the way into the church. The gospel is not the way into the church. The message of God is not just the entrance exam. And then we just pick it up from law, like the booster rockets that gets us going and then it just falls off as we get ourselves to heaven. No, preaching the gospel is the ministry of the church because we always need the gospel. Every single one of us, whether we're mature or immature, whether we're young or old, every single one of us needs the gospel. Whether we've been walking with Jesus for one day or 20, 30 years, we still fall into idolatry, don't we? We don't worship Zeus and Hermes or worship often at the feet of Moses by trying to obey the law, but every single one of us give ourselves to something in this world. 
And that'll never satisfy. That'll never bring us hope or peace. There's no new family I can have or child or fix or product or vacation or whatever it may be that you think will bring you peace. It will never satisfy us because God made us to be satisfied only in Him. Only in Him by worshiping and proclaiming the greatness of Him. And we are lawbreakers, idolaters, and the only hope, the only hope for every single one of us Walking with Jesus and for the one that's just heard this the first time is trusting in Jesus by faith. Walking by faith, trusting in Him, repenting of our sins constantly, turning to Him for hope. It's not foolishness. It's not. It's our only hope. And God is pleased to work through this. The hope of the non-believer and the believer. So we need to remember that cherish the gospel, to attend to the preaching of the word because God is pleased to grow his church through the preaching of the word and foolish gospel ministry. I'm going to come back to this every week, but please look at verse 27 with me to wrap this up. When Paul and Barnabas get back to Antioch, when, they, when the missionary journey is over, the first one, look at what they say, verse 27. When they arrived and gathered the church together, this is their sending church, they declared all that God had done with them. Yes, they preached, they did miracles, but God did the work. And how He, God, had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. Paul and Barnabas were faithful to preach But God saved the loss. Paul and Barnabas were faithful to endure persecution and go back to the church to preach. But God fed his church on the gospel. And God continues to do that today. Let us be faithful to proclaim his word and to feed on the gospel together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, so thankful that we don't have to believe the lies of this world. We don't have to run after any hope that we see in this world, however fleeting and foolish it may be, to satisfy ourselves, to find hope and peace, to be reconciled to you, Lord. You have provided everything in Christ. He came and obeyed in our place perfectly, righteously for us. And we can trust in Him and find hope that takes us beyond this world so that we find hope in You so that we're saved and we can be with You forever. God, help us to see beyond the foolish words of our world, to see the power of Your work to save in us and among us and to rejoice that we have the Gospel, that we can be in Christ by faith. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.